0: Hello and welcome to Animal Rights, the Abolitionist Approach Commentary. This is Gary Francione. Well, this is our 23rd No Frills, No Bells, No Whistles Commentary concerning the abolition of animal exploitation, the failure of animal welfare reform, veganism as the baseline of the animal rights movement and creative nonviolent vegan advocacy as the primary form of animal rights activism, and the principle of ahimsa or nonviolence and its role in all of our advocacy efforts. Well, in this 23rd commentary, we're going to have a guest, Professor Robert Garner of the University of Leicester, who will be talking uh, with me about our new book, The Animal Rights Debate, Abolition or Regulation. This is a fairly lengthy uh, commentary, and so without further ado, I will turn to the interview with Professor Garner. Okay, uh, in this commentary... I have with me Professor Robert Garner, uh, who's at the University of Leicester and the uh, Department of Politics. Are you still chairperson of the department? No, no. Ah, uh, good, good for you. <laughs> that that uh, curse has passed to someone else. Um, and uh, Professor Garner and I uh, co-authored the book, The Animal Rights Debate, Abolition or Regulation, which was published in November by Columbia University Press. And, um, In the book, uh, we're both rights advocates uh, in the sense that um, uh, uh, unlike... Uh, many other theorists, uh, Professor Garner does not adopt a, uh, a consequential or a wholly con- a wholly consequentialist position. He has a deontological he has a deontological notion of rights in his position. But where we differ is, uh, I maintain that uh, sentient beings have a right not to be used. That we have an obligation not to treat them as resources, however humanely we treat them. Whereas Professor Garner uh, takes the position that uh, animals have a right not to suffer unacceptably uh and uh, but he doesn't uh, he doesn't uh, uh, agree that uh, on the issue of use so in this commentary i have asked professor garner to uh, come on and discuss with me uh a couple of the the issues that we discuss in the book and um the book by the way uh, you can get uh, at your bookstore or you can get it online i have been informed by columbia that although the book sold out in uh, i guess by the beginning of december the the uh, the run which had been printed in um in late October uh, sold out in November and uh, but now there are more books available so you can get the book welcome to the abolitionist approach commentary, Professor Garner
1: thank you very much, thanks for inviting me Gary,
0: my pleasure Robert um, Robert, in, in the book um, one, one of our central one of our points of, of central disagreement is uh, we both advocate rights but, but um, we advocate different rights and you advocate the right not to suffer unacceptably. Uh, and one of the things we discuss in the book is what does it mean to say uh, to suffer unacceptably? Could you clarify what, what you think about that and what you mean by a right not to suffer unacceptably?
1: Yeah, sure. I, I should preface that perhaps by saying that my position is a little bit more nuanced than that. And maybe that will come out in our discussion but in, in, in general terms, I'm saying that domesticated animals at least have a right not to suffer at the hands of humans. Um, now, obviously, a, a pain-free or uh, boredom-free or exi- anxiety-free existence is not always possible. But I would think that anything but minor levels of suffering would be unacceptable according to my position. Um, I'm not a biologist or an animal welfare scientist, and so I can't provide a definitive answer as to what a minor level of suffering would would be. But I think, as a general point, it would rule out factory farming and and most invasive forms of animal experimentation.
0: But it's basically a ba- it's it's a it's a balancing test, as it were, isn't it? I mean, doesn't doesn't it doesn't it sort of get us back to sort of the utilitarian balancing test of of I mean obviously any level of suffering is unacceptable to the animal. So the question becomes what is unacceptable to us, right? And so doesn't it get us back to that balancing test or to a balancing test?
1: No, because it it's 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 a different position from an animal welfare position which would hold that that any form of suffering is is permissible providing that human benefits accrue from it. My position would be that that in as far as any particular way of treating animals causes suffering, then that becomes that 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 should, ought to be prohibited on the grounds that animals have a right not to suffer. So it isn't it it, it doesn't involve a, a balancing act at all um, in that sense. And I I think that I, I know that you raised issues about how you define what. Um, uh, what particular levels of suffering are going to be uh, are going to be acceptable? I don't think it's unusual for for rights, uh, for particular rights, to be short of content in that sense. I mean, if you take, for instance, the right not to suffer, which is regarded as one of the key um, liberal rights, then that opens all kinds of questions about the degree to which. Uh, it includes the right, for instance, to say anything you like about uh, religion or race and, and so forth. So, establishing a right to free speech, for instance, would would then is the start of the process. Uh, um, uh, but in order to implement it, you have to provide a lot of detail.
0: But I know I agree with you um, that rights aren't absolute and that in many cases where um, rights conflict there has to be a balancing of 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 interests uh, or, in a, or or at least I mean I guess you could say one has to assess the the strength of the competing rights and, and what that does I think I mean to, to, your example is a good one the right of free speech right so you say well I have a right of free speech fine uh... But now, do I have a right to yell fire in a crowded movie theater? No, I don't. But is that a matter of balancing? Uh, and that's, I would say in that situation it's not because the reason why you have a right of free speech is because we want you to contribute to the marketplace of ideas and to public discourse and we want there to be a vibrant uh... public discourse but yelling fire in a crowded movie theater when there is no fire obviously if there's a fire uh... Then it's, a, it's, a, it's a good thing to, to, to yell out but but if it's if there's not a fire uh... then you're not really contributing to the marketplace of ideas what you're doing is you're putting something patently false into the marketplace of ideas which which uh, which instead of, of of invigorating public discourse is going to um, cause injury and panic etc. so so there are situations in which rights can arguably conflict um, or which they ostensibly conflict where when we but when we look into the nature of the rights we you know we, we see that really they don't they don't conflict at all because because the the ostensible conflict actually causes us to 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 focus on what the, um, what the, uh, the scope of the, of the right is. Um, but there may be situations in which rights really conflict and, um, in order for us to, um, uh, uh, determine the scope of competing rights, we have to assess relative interests. I agree with that. Uh, I agree with that. But when we talk about the right of an animal, which is our property, uh, because that's the only relationship we have with them, um, a right not to suffer unacceptably. From the point of view of the animal, any suffering is, is not acceptable, is not desirable, not desired or desirable. Um and and so doesn't it really get back to what level of suffering is acceptable given the benefit we want to get? So so I agree with you. I'm not I'm not trying to attribute to you a sort of a classical Welfare is balancing act but it but it's some, something similar i mean it's a more progressive version uh, a much more progressive version of the welfarist balancing act isn't it because what you're doing is trying to assess the our interest in using um our animal property when the animal has an interest in not being used and and so the question becomes what's the strength of our benefit what's the strength of the benefit we're getting so doesn't it get back to a progressive version of that balancing act
1: no, because I think the bottom line is that, that the right not to suffer can't be traded off against other human benefits that might be uh, produced by causing animals to suffer. So that um, the issue of property, I think, although obviously it's important and uh, it's central to your argument and no doubt we will come to it, I think the, the idea of property here can be uh, can be dispensed with in the sense that we're dealing in the abstract with the notion of, a, of of a right and and to me it seems that that a right not to suffer cannot be traded off against um, a, a human benefit that might accrue from it um, so we 're quibbling about what a minor level of suffering might be, and of course you know that, that evolutionary biologists would tell us that some levels of suffering uh, might have a have a, an important function in terms of warning an animal or um, a non-human animal or human of, of dangers that might be faced. So, I, I, I'm not I, I I am saying that this this right not to suffer cannot be traded off against any human benefit, and that's that's the bottom line. and And that makes it very different, I think, from a an animal welfare position, which would allow um, humans to exploit animals and cause animals to suffer for for any significant benefit my position would 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 rule that out
0: all right well let, let me let me this i think the second question let, let's try to make it more more concrete uh, and and um I'm talking with Professor Robert Garner of the University of Leicester. Professor Garner is a political theorist, um, and um, we co-authored The Animal Rights Debate, Abolition or Regulation, published by Columbia University Press in November of 2011. And uh, we're talking today about some of the, uh, the themes of that book. All right, well. Let me ask you a specific uh, example. This is, I'm reading from the, the list of questions uh, that, uh, that I, I suggested we focus on. So, uh, although you think factory farming cannot be morally justified, if animals could be raised in a pleasant way with minimal suffering and killed in a relatively painless way for food, or if animals could be used in experiments with minimal suffering and significant benefits for humans, uh, you could not object, could you? And then I said, let's take a very clear example. I have a cow who lives in the back garden. I treat her very well. I shoot her. One bullet, instantaneous death. She doesn't feel anything. Didn't know what hit her. Kill her and I eat her. Have I done anything morally wrong? Let's take that as a as a as a hypothetical. Have I done anything wrong? If I have this cow in my back garden, I treat her really, really well. I shoot her, uh she doesn't she doesn't feel anything. You know, one bullet, I do it I do it correctly, and I eat her. Have I done anything morally wrong?
1: Yes. Uh, to cut a long story short, um, but, <laughs> uh, but in, uh, this allows me really to to develop the, the the nuances in the argument that perhaps don't don't um, um, that that's difficult to articulate from simply talking about the the right not to suffer. Um, of course, this is this is an extremely complex moral question, and I think we we simplify it at our peril. Um, at least that's what I tell my students, anyway. Um, <laughs> um, I think I'll start by making two general points. One is that, uh, that the first point I would make is to to say that I wouldn't want to say that all uses of animals are necessarily wrong, and that's, that distinguishes your position from mine. And secondly, this conclusion is based on the view that I, I don't think that the possession of rights is an all-or-nothing affair. Um, so according to an interest-based theory of rights, rights are allocated um, according to the, the degree in which they protect important interests. Um, so we wouldn't want to say, for instance, that animals have a right to vote, since this wouldn't protect any important interests that animals have. That's, um, an, that's
0: actually an example I use, but I, I actually think that if we gave them uh, a right to vote, we'd probably have in both of our political systems
1: better results. Go ahead. Sorry. That, yes, I mean on on that point, I, mean, <laughs> I think an, animal interests could be represented in the political system, right. and I think that that's that's an important uh, an important point. Um, the, the idea of representing the interests of animals uh, on the lines that we represent the interests of future generations would be is, is uh, there's an important argument which uh, not not a great deal of work's been done on it, actually.
0: Actually, I, I was just making so sure, I was yeah, making, I know sure, you were the, making the, the less useful cabinet saying let's let them vote and we'll have better political leaders. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
1: um, I, I've recently been rereading James Rachels on this. You know his book um, Created from Animals, yes, which is written now twenty years ago, believe it or not. Um,
0: did you did you ever meet James Rachels? No, no, I didn't. I I actually, uh, just as an aside, I had he was an absolutely wonderful man. He passed away a few years ago, and um, I had the pleasure of meeting him. He had a um, he 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 did a um, conference. Uh, my recollection is, it was at the University of Richmond. I think I believe that's where it was. Although I may be wrong about this, but I believe it was the University of Richmond. But in any event, he he sponsored a conference and he had me come and speak. And um, he was, uh, uh, I think, "Created from Animals" is a is a great book. And he was uh, a terrific uh, philosopher, terrific philosopher. But I'm sorry, go ahead. You were saying you were reading "Created from Animals." Yeah.
1: Well, what, what what he argues is, uh, I mean, he, he criticizes philosophers such as Kant and and uh, Robert Nozick for um, attempting to identify one difference between humans and non humans that, that's that's relevant to justifying all differences in the way they're treated and and that difference, as you know, is 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 usually said to be human autonomy or self consciousness or moral agency or some such concept. Um, but as he points out, this isn't right because the the characteristics that, that are relevant to justifying uh, uh, treatments uh, vary with the the different kinds of treatments you're talking about. So if you say comparing, I think the example he gives is comparing admission to universities and torture, now clearly an animal's inability to read and write would um, um, mean that it would be ridiculous to, to give animals a right to university education um there's there's a there 's a joke there I think we could we could tell quite anyway um but of course you know in the case of uh, in in, uh, in the case of torture it's the capacity for for suffering that's, that's crucial so it's, it has nothing to do with human autonomy or moral agency and so forth um, so in you know in terms of the interest that animals have we, we could include an interest in say life liberty and, and, and well-being. Um, but I would say that the animals clearly have an interest in not suffering, and, and this interest in not suffering, is, all things being equal, is equivalent to a human's interest in not suffering. Um, so the bottom line is for me that animals clearly have a right not to have suffering inflicted upon them by humans, um, at least they do if we say that humans have such a right. Um, so it's clearly the case that then that, that those human uses of animals of course suffering are from illegitimate morally. So that's the position that I described earlier. Now, I, you know, I, I think, uh, as I said in the book, I think applying this ethic would remove a great deal of, of what troubles people about our treatment of animals. Um, and this is clearly a much more far-reaching principle than than an animal welfare ethic. Um, But I'm not denying, and this is a key point really, I'm not denying that that animals also have an interest in continued life. Um, What I do think, however, for for, um, perhaps the reasons I'll explore in the answer to the next question, is, is that this interest is inferior to the interest in continued life that normal adult humans have. So even if we say that animals have a right to life, I think this right can be... Overridden by a human's right to life. Um, but, and, and this is a crucial bit in answer to your question since animals do have an interest in continued life, we shouldn't take their lives with impunity. Um, in, indeed, I'm inclined to think that animal lives should only be sacrificed if by so doing the lives of humans are protected. So, to cut a long story short, I wouldn't regard the humane killing of of a cow in my back garden as acceptable morally, unless I was starving, and without eating the cow, without killing and eating the cow, I would die of starvation. Um, so that that you know that, that points out the nuances in my my argument. Um,
0: but, wait minute, but 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 how, how do you how do you get there though? If you don't believe, if you think that the interest in not suffering is protected by a right, but you but but uh i i um I thought the central disagreement between us and the book was that you didn't think that there was a question about whether an animal had an interest in continued living that there was a question about that that you weren't you weren't clear on that one way or another but that you didn't think that um, uh, we could talk about the right of an animal not to be used at all um, because if if that if what you're saying is is that I can't kill because if you're saying that it's not just factory farming that's a problem, because that was the, the position that I thought you took in the book is that you had to rule out factory farming, but that it would not rule out all necessarily rule out all uses of animals for food. Um, because if the right not to suffer was not violated, then the right there there was no right not to be used. Because if we agree that there's a right not to be used then we agree, completely, <laughs> on everything. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, because I, I
0: now all the animal groups are going to start be having problems with you too. Go ahead. <laughs> yes, uh, uh, yeah,
1: yeah. That, 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 that we we should stop now. Like uh, no, I, I, no. What I what I I don't think that that um, uh, that y- you can talk uh, about an animal's right not to be used. Um, as a kind of absolute principle which can't be qualified, um, but I, but I, I, I do say, and I do qualify. Uh, I don't say in the book that that animals have no interest in life. I, I just take the kind of um, the, the the consensus view amongst animal ethicists that that the interest that animals have in continued life is less than uh, the continued interest that humans. Uh, the 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 interest in humans having continued life, so that in the event of a conflict, the the um, human life takes precedence, which is kind of a view that, as you know, that uh, that, that most animal ethicists take. Um
0: well it's the, it's the position that Reagan takes but 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 Singer would take um the position would he not that and, and I want to get to Reagan in a second cuz I'd like your views on on something that 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 Reagan says but um but if you take Singer's I mean Singer's position is is that is that if I mean he 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 puts aside the great uh, the non-human uh, uh great apes and um and perhaps dolphins but he basically says certainly with respect to most of the animals that we consume as food uh and, and and you know chickens and cows and whatnot I mean he basically takes the position that uh per se killing them is not inflicting a harm on them because they don't have uh, a sense of what it is to have a life, and uh, yes, they do have an interest in not suffering, but they don't have an interest in life. So you would dis- you, you would disagree with Singer in that position?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm keen to distinguish myself from Singer in in, in this regard, um, in in the sense that as a utilitarian, he can't but uh, help saying that uh, uh, that uh, or, or avoiding the question of of animal lives because a utilitarian a classical utilitarian is only concerned really about the issue of 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 suffering the but the difference between singer and an animal welfare position is that, that for singer adopting a classical utilitarian principle then the issue of human lives is is equally irrelevant philosophically for him but but um, he's but
0: he's an int- he's a he's a preference utilitarian, so he's not just a hedonistic utilitarian. He's a preference utilitarian. So, and and I, I um and, and, and he when he's determining what's permissible or not permissible, applying the utilitarian calculus, he's looking at interest satisfaction, and he's claiming that as an empirical matter, as a factual matter, animals don't have an interest in continuing to live, so that. Uh, when you are trying to figure out whose interests are affected I mean that's why he says that um uh, human beings have an interest in continuing to live, so therefore as a as a prima facie uh, uh principle, we shouldn't be treating humans as as replaceable resources, even if we don't even if we don't make them suffer by using them as as replaceable resources, we shouldn't use them as replaceable resources. We can because he's a utilitarian, so he's got to acknowledge that um, that 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 there can be circumstances in which we could use humans as replaceable resources. But he he explicitly says that using non humans as replaceable resources doesn't raise the moral issue. Uh, the moral issue is the suffering issue because as an empirical matter, and I don't see this as in any way, I, I don't I mean because you can have people on uh, you can have rights people I mean it does, this is not uh, this is not peculiar to a utilitarian position um, he he maintains as an empirical matter they don't have an interest in continuing to live um, and they don't have an interest in autonomy they don't have an interest they don't have they don't have the sorts of, of, of interests uh, liberty interests prefer you know autonomy interests whatever they don't have those interests um, and therefore taking those interests away it, it does not raise a moral issue
1: yes and i and, and I, I disagree with him on that point for reasons perhaps we can explore in in, in the third question um uh, whether you call this interest that animals have in in not suffering a right is is a matter of semantics to me because i think it's still less than a human's interest in life and that's presumably where we differ.
0: Well, no, I mean, I would say an, 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 whether I have an interest is an empirical question. Whether or not I have a right... Uh, a right is simply a way of protecting an interest, so i don 't sure. uh, yeah. uh, I, so i don 't see it as a semantic thing. I, see, I mean I have an interest whether or not my interest is protected in a particular way is a, is a, is a sec- separate question from whether I have the interest and and um, uh, but but let 's get back to my cow in the backyard. How have I violated the right not to suffer if if I treat the cow really, really well? And I killed the cow in a completely painless
1: way. How have I violated the right not to suffer? Uh, you you haven't at all. Um, um, but the the nuances in my argument would 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 suggest that it's that given that animals have an interest in in continued life, which is less than the humans, unless you're killing the cow for a human purpose, which is greater than. A uh, mere absence of suffering, then, then it becomes Ill- illegitimate. Um, so they have a right not to be used, but it's simply a right. I mean, it's... they have a right, well. They, 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 in that situation, uh, their interests ought to be protected because there's no um, substantial human interest which is being um, promoted by. Uh, by by killing them in that situation.
0: So you would. So then you would be. Have, you'd have to be committed not only get rid, to getting rid of factory farming. You'd have to be get, committed to getting rid of all animal farming, presumably.
1: On that position, yes, yes, um, except in those positions where. Um, um, killing and eating animals was necessary for human survival. So, in the situation where I'm on the lifeboat,
0: I can kill and eat the cow. But uh, it would have to be a pretty big lifeboat to have a cow in it. But I, I, I can kill and eat the animal when I'm on the desert island and there are no vegetable products for me to eat. I can I can kill and eat the animal. Yeah. Um, but under no other circumstance can I do that.
1: If you adopt this this nuanced position, which and this is. I think I raise this issue in, in 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 the book in answer to a question. I, I mean, the, the the point I'd raise is that, that in in political or strategic terms, it's it's far more it's far easier to to sell the argument about a right not to suffer than it would be to sell this rather elongated argument about a, 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 an interest in life, um, but. We we still do differ in the sense that you you rule out um, the use of animals absolutely, whereas I would say that it depends upon the circumstances. And
0: well, tell me a situation in which you think. I mean, because in I, introduction to animal rights, um, uh, I, I basically make that argument. I say that well, um, if if I'm on a desert island and I have no vegetable products to eat it may be morally excusable not justifiable but morally excusable for me to kill and eat an animal but it would also be in those situations morally excusable for me to kill and eat a human and I talk about those legal cases where people have actually engaged in situations like you know they, where they're shipwrecked uh, and they're they're drifting at sea for three weeks or whatever and then um, they kill somebody uh, and they eat that person and nobody thinks it's a good thing nobody thinks it's justifiable but people regard it as excusable that is it's morally wrong but we understand why people did it um, and um, and we think it mitigates their culpability so um you know so i i wouldn't disagree i mean in a situation where i was um I was starving to death and there was absolutely nothing else for me to eat and I was going to die unless I killed another sentient being. It may be morally excusable for me to kill a sentient being human or non-human in a situation like that. Um and um you know again we wouldn't say it's morally good but we would say it's it's understandable and my culpability is mitigated. But tell me what would be, give me a situation um in which you you think you and I would disagree? On animal use, because you're, you're you're quite quite right to say I don't think we have I don't think we can use animals at all. Um, so you're 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 right. I do do take that position. But but what I'm trying to understand is what is the situation in which you would think animal use would be okay? Give me an example.
1: Well, I think the issue of animal experimentation is probably more appropriate to to, to discuss in the sense that. Um, would you oppose the use of? Assume I know there's a big assumption to make. Assume that it, it would be possible. Scientists tell us that it would be possible to to find a um, uh, de- or to develop a drug which will w- which will uh, deal effectively with a potentially fatal disease, um, and assume that they are assume that the science is there that they're right to say that and that the only way of doing it is to use animals um, would you then oppose that sure absolutely yeah i mean i uh, i i would not
0: let me let me state it clearly i would not kill a mouse to find a cure for cancer i wouldn't do it i mean i i mean we would never be in a situation where um we're we're going to do that um, or w- w- it would be possible for us to do it. So, so it's a completely unrealistic hypothetical. But um, And I think there are all sorts of, of empirical questions about the use of animals in biomedical experiments, which raise yeah, all, sure. you know, all, sure. all, all, tons and tons of empirical questions. Yeah. Uh, but if you push them all aside, and I think it's difficult to do that, but if you push them all aside and just ask the bare question, um, assuming... Hypothetically, we could come up with a situation in which scientists say, if we, you know, use these animals in painful biomedical experiments in which they will be tortured and killed, uh, but we could find a cure for a bad disease, would it be okay? My answer would be no. Um, and, and I, you know, and 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 and, and I would. See, well, and, and your answer would be different, I assume.
1: Well, it wouldn't in a sense that that that, uh, that the, the right not to suffer would rule out. Uh, inflicting pain on animals in in that situation, but if if animals could be used in 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 a way which didn't cause pain, and the benefits are clearly hugely important for for for, for humans, then then I I would um, regard that as as, as unfortunately necessary. Um, and i think that's where you
0: and i differ okay so so but the, but then it's a, then it then i think it's a um uh, a small point of disagreement because um if you're saying that we can't use animals not only for factory farming but for any uh a- any e- eating purpose whatsoever unless we're starving to death um i must say i i i i, I certainly didn't um Think this was your position in the book, but uh, you know, but I, you know, I, 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 I'm glad we're clarifying it now. But I, I, I was under the impression you thought factory farming was pretty much uh, uh, ruled out, uh, but that alternative forms of agriculture, uh, if they, if they did not involve unacceptable levels of suffering. Um, and we talked about in the book what that meant, and I, I was confused about what that meant. Um, but that if it, that if animal agriculture didn't involve unacceptable levels of suffering, then um, we would uh, we would be able to engage in animal agriculture. But what I hear you saying now is that um, uh, a- animals have a right not to suffer unacceptably, but they also have a right. They have a right not to be used that right though is less has great has is as, as weaker than the right of humans not to be used for the benefit of others but that animals can only be used in situations in which they do not suffer at all. So we couldn't we couldn't use the animals in painful biomedical experiments. We could only use them in non-painful biomedical experiments in which they would lose their lives, but which they would not suffer. But, they, but that basically we would rule out the use of all animals for food altogether, except in situations of starvation um we would rule out all use of animals for any sort of entertainment purpose b- by definition um and and so the only use of animals about which you would disagree with me is you would say in the situation in which a completely painless experiment which pr- presented tremendous benefits for humans um but didn't involve any animal suffering then we could we could use the animals in that for, for that purpose. Is that what I? Yeah, agree?
1: there may be other there may be other uses of animals which which uh, don't um, cause suffering, which uh, would be entirely legitimate for me because they don't. Even though they involve the use of even though they they use animals, uh, and animals remain property whilst they're being used. But the, 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 this this issue is raised. on, I've got the book in front of me, actually. Um, Page 200 and 201, where I talk about the difference between what I call a, a sentient position, which is the the right not to suffer, and then I raise the issue of an enhanced, what I call an enhanced sen- sentient uh, sentient position, which I say might go further than this by suggesting that lower humans have a greater interest in life. This doesn't mean that animals have no interest in life and the, the the qualification in the what i call the enhanced sentience position is clearly significant. It's clearly significant because this would allow for scientific experimentation on the raising and killing of animals for food provided that no suffering in animals was inflicted
0: okay so so all right so so let's take that then if you're saying the enhanced sentience position is would permit and 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 by the way you know i i, I think i pointed out I was surprised when you announced that towards towards the end of the book because I had understood you to be arguing what you called on page two hundred and two or whatever the sentience position in the book. So when you got to page two hundred and two and said, "Well, there's this enhanced sentience position that would rule out basically um, you know a, a lot of animal use except that which didn't involve unacceptable suffering." Okay, now that brings me to my to my situation with the cow. If the cow doesn't suffer at all, if she has a wonderful life and I kill her painlessly, how have I run afoul of the enhanced sentience position? Because the enhanced sentience position is I can't use her. Um, looking, I have, I have one of the remaining copies from that run left. Um, uh, let me see. Um. Okay. I'm just looking at um the enhanced sentience position uh would rule out experimentation and the raising of animals for food unless life were at stake, irrespective of the level of suffering inflicted. So so in that situation, what you're saying is basically the enhanced sentience position would
1: be largely indistinguishable from my position. In the case of in the case of eating animals for food, yes and and presumably it would be the same as
0: my position in every case except for the use of animals in experiments in which there is no suffering
1: well the be uses of animals in other spheres which you might think is unacceptable because it involves their use which which i wouldn't because it it doesn't uh, cause suffering but
0: but but that's my my, exa- my example of the cow there was no suffering with the eating yeah. of the
1: cow so why would? Yes, that, so I would I would object to that. Yes,
0: but what? Okay, um, I'm trying. I'm just trying to get a handle on what uses you would think would be acceptable under the enhanced sentience position.
1: Well, the, the in in abstract terms, it would be the use, use of animals in, in, in any sphere which didn't involve the infliction of suffering and the loss of life.
0: Okay, so so if I raise the cow and I allow the cow to, the cow to die of natural causes. Then that would be okay. Yes. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I okay. I I. I didn't really understand that that uh, <laughs> that was the position that you were taking. Let me ask you this. I'm, I'm not sure where... I, uh, okay, let's, let, let's, let's look at this enhanced sentience position for a second, because I, my right not to be used is derived from the general notion that animals are members of the moral community, and they can't be members of the moral community as long as they have no intrinsic or inherent interest. And by definition, they can't have intrinsic or inherent interest as long as they are property, because property to be property is... Uh, even to be regulated, property is to be um, something that has uh, uh, only extrinsic or external value and doesn't have inherent or intrinsic moral value. Um, and I don't think any any economist would uh, or, or or legal theorist would would. Uh, I mean, people believe that you can regulate property better, and they believe that uh, you can. Um, you can accord greater weight to animal interests, but the bottom line is, if they're property, to say that they are—it's a binary world. You're either property or you're not property, and if you're property, uh, you're, if you're chattel property, um, you, uh, you you have no inherent or uh, intrinsic value. So my argument has always been: well, if animals are members of the moral community, that means they have to have inherent or intrinsic moral value, and 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 what that means is at the very minimum, they can't be property. But once you say they can't be property, the whole house of cards comes collapsing down because all institutionalized animal use and animal exploitation uh, rests on the notion that animals are property. So um, uh, that's where I derive my right from, uh, my right not to be used. It is not clear to me where you derive your right not to suffer unacceptably or this enhanced sentience position, which... um, uh, uh, i'm I'm pleasantly surprised to hear but somewhat surprised to hear is really sort of a right not to be used um it's it, it, it's it's pretty much extensive with the right not to be used. I mean, there are some minor there are some minor exceptions, uh, but basically the world in the world that you would construct and the world that I would construct would be largely the same. I mean, there would be some differences, but they would be very 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 minor differences. Um, and certainly we wouldn't we wouldn't um, there be minor differences based on what you just said. So so tell me, where does this right come? Where do these rights come from?
1: Well, uh, fundamentally, it derives from. The interests uh, that animals have, and the interests that humans have, when we accord rights to humans, um, so that an animal's interest in in continued uh, an animal's interest in continued life must be reflected morally in in some as- aspect of our moral theory. But given that human interest in continued life, I argue, is is uh, uh, um, much more considerable, and that, that would mean, in the event of a conflict, the the interest that humans have in continued life must prevail. Um, so, my you know my my moral theory is is based fundamentally on on interest, and there is as you as you know there is this debate within rights theory between interest-based theories of rights and will-based theories of rights. Whereas the, the will-based theory is based, based on the the need uh, perceived need for autonomy or choice, whereas the interest-based theory is 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 based entirely on 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 well-being. So I, I'm very much in 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 the uh, in the interest-based camp. Um, I should perhaps say that that um, one of the Arguments I, I, I did make in the book, which has probably led to this um, um, some of this slight confusion, is that I would argue that the the, the the sentience position, as opposed to the enhanced sentience position, is is much more politically or strategically um, um, sensible. So that um, perhaps that explains why the. The articulation of the enhanced engine's position isn't, doesn't take a prominent part in my essay. Although I have to say that I did raise, I did raise the issue of animals' interest in continued life in 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 the essay, um, but didn't explore the moral dimension of that.
0: Okay. Well, l- l- let me let me ask you this then. Um, when you say the I want to get to that because I think that uh, if we if we if we say well the sentience position the the, the interests of animals and not suffering uh, is the primary thing um, and that is that, that has a, a it's more acceptable from a pragmatic point of view um, then that gets us into the whole well this is what, what the animal. Protection groups are doing now. They're pursuing happy meat labels and all of these sorts of welfare reforms. Yes. And that sort of that sort of gets us to the um, well. What do we do in terms of of, of practical politics? And you and I. Uh, and I, I, I hesitate to say this. I, I, I say I think we disagree about that, but I might find we yeah, we, we definitely uh, do. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, but, but before before we get there, I want to ask you this question: Why do you, th- in the book, you say that um, you agree with other moral philosophers and disagree with me that um, that you think that 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 other things being equal, human life has greater moral value than non-human life. Now, I understand that from a theological point of view, but I don't understand you'd be making a theological argument. So uh, what, I'm, what I'm wanting to know is, why do you think that um, uh, uh, he, human life has a greater moral value than non-human life? I mean, and, and, and I, I, I want to say, I agree that you're, you're Certainly Singer says that. I mean, most moral philosophers say that, and even Reagan says that. Um, because Reagan says that you know when you 're on the lifeboat uh, and, and you 've got a choice between throwing over uh, th- throwing the dog out or throwing the human out, you have a moral obligation to throw the dog out and indeed he says you 've got a moral obligation if it 's a question of a million dogs versus one person, you have one human, you have the obligation to throw over the million dogs because death is less of a harm for each of the dogs than it is for the human and and, and i um I always found that to be odd, and I actually wrote an essay about that in, 19, in the mid-1990s. I wrote uh, an essay that was uh, in, in a, in a I, I think it was Between the Species. Uh, I, I uh, included it in my Animals as Persons book in 2008, in which I argued that that's a serious flaw for Reagan's, Reagan's theory, because um, if, if, um, if there's a non-arbitrary way... Of distinguishing moral agents from moral patients, um, such that when whenever you're in a situation of conflict between uh, a human and an animal, you have a moral obligation to choose the the um, the, 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 the human. Then it would seem that you've got a non-arbitrary way of distinguishing moral agents from moral patients for the purposes of justifying inst- institutionalized exploitation. So you certainly would be able to justify, on Reagan's view, you certainly would be able to justify vivisection, and indeed vivisection that 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 caused uh, uh, pain and suffering. I mean, you, I I don't I don't see how he can I don't see how he can avoid that um, if if there's a if there's a non-arbitrary way of distinguishing moral agents from moral patients. I, I just don't think there is i mean i, I, I thought i think that tom's view that it, and and for those of you who are not familiar with reagan's view on this Reagan maintains that humans have greater opportunities for satisfaction than non humans so therefore death is always a greater harm for a non- for a human than it is for a non human um and and i mean I suppose he could be persuaded that in there there could be certain situations in which you had a mentally Disabled uh, uh, human being, a severely mentally disabled human being, uh, who was sentient but nevertheless had very few opportunities for satisfaction, and a dog, and he might say in that situation the dog has greater opportunities for satisfaction. So, so, but, but he's generally he's making a general species point that humans have greater opportunities for satisfaction, and I, I disagreed with that then. Uh, I disagreed with it now, and I don't understand why. I mean, I have five dogs, and they they seem to. I mean, they, the things that they have, that they get, they get satisfaction from, seem to be much, uh, uh, much greater in terms of number than the sorts of things that we get satisfaction. In fact, the, the, the things that humans get satisfaction from. But I'm wondering, why do you think that this? This, I know you're not advancing a theological position, so tell me why you think it has a moral cash value, in a non-theological sense. Yes,
1: yeah, so first of all, in, in reference to, to Tom Regan's uh, argument. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, he does talk about uh, uh, um, inherent value as being something you either possess or you don't and you possess it and don't, or don't possess it equally. So that that would imply at least that animals and humans, uh, um, humans and non-human animals have um, um, equal inherent value. I, I would raise the, the, a, a slight problem with trying to uh, extrapolate from his lifeboat example because as as, as many philosophers have pointed out um, the, the lifeboat case is, is not an exact parallel of say uh, the use of animals in experimentation in the sense that animals don't choose to be in the lifeboat um so there isn't it isn't the same kind of choice involved as 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 deciding to use animals in experimentation which he's hoped will help humans
0: well but but, so, but is, isn 't he saying though robert isn't he saying in a situation of conflict he, he he may he would say in i think in a situation of true conflict however it 's constructed, and so we could say i mean plausibly say um that in a situation where uh... uh... you have human beings who have cancer and you have animals who could provide data that would be and I'm, su- I'm, you know, I'm assuming i'm making a lot of assumptions here because i think animal experimentation is basically voodoo science but but let's just take it on its own terms let's assume you say as an empirical matter um, you've got humans with a disease you've got animals who can provide data that would be uh... 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 Th- that would causally lead uh, and you can make a direct argument you can make an argument about direct causation um, to a cure wouldn 't he, based on what he says in the in the case for animal rights in the section on the lifeboat isn 't he committed to saying that um yeah you 've got you know if there 's no other way to do it, then you 've got to choose the the humans over the non humans
1: I used to think that but i 'm not so sure now because i 'm not sure that the, the the parallels are exact i mean if you 're talking about say rescuing a, a Human or a non-human animal from a burning building—that would seem to be a different scenario from whether or not to use non-human animals in in, uh, in scientific experimentation, um, because you know the, the animals in the burning building, whereas the, the, in the case of scientific experimentation, we choose to use animals in that way, and if we didn't use if we didn't use animals in that way they they would they would be fine whereas the the burning building scenario is slightly different is either us or them as it were so I think it's uh you know well but a, but wait,
0: a minute, wait a minute. I, 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 then then the, then the then the the burning house or the or the boat examples become sort of useless in terms of hypotheticals from moral theory because the number of times we actually encounter the dog in the burning house or the dog on the lifeboat um are pretty small what we do encounter in life is um correctly or incorrectly perceived situations in which it's us or them now i agree with you that to say it's us or them in the context of eating animals uh is not an accurate characterization of the situation um unless you are on that desert island and you're starving to death and it's us or them um Certainly. Uh, okay. Well, let's take the desert island situation. Uh, I mean, uh, 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 Reagan would say in the situation where I'm on the desert island, I've got an obligation um, uh, to, if I can kill and eat a human or a non-human, I have a species obli- I have an obligation based on species to kill the human, <laughs> kill the non-human rather than the human. But, 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 I, I, I want to. I, I. What I'm trying to get to is the the vivisection hypothetical although it's deeply flawed because it, it makes all sorts of assumptions, but as a, as a, just from a purely normative moral analysis, it is, we can hypothesize a situation where it's us or them. Where if we don't, I mean, you know, a plague comes, and, um, and if we don't kill uh, a bunch of animals, we are not going, you know, a large number of us will not survive or whatever. Um, or if we don't kill these animals, we will not find a cure for cancer, and many of us will die. Now, I think if we became vegans, many of many fewer of us would die from cancer, so we wouldn't even have to think about animal experimentation. But, but you know, I, I'm talking about the hypothetical. How is that different? How is the how is the the only way we're going to find the cure for cancer is by using the animals? Uh, how is that any different from the lifeboat situation? Yes, the animals are on the lifeboat. The animal is in the burning building, whereas we're reaching out and we're, we're using the animals. But it's in a situation. I understand that's a difference, but it just seems to me to be a difference without uh, much of a distinction because in, in in the situation, we're basically saying, in both situations, we're saying it's us or them. So I, I'm not, I, I, I understand the differences. I just don't see them as, I don't understand why they're morally relevant.
1: Well, we could use humans in that situation, couldn't we? In, in terms of um, finding a cure for cancer, and that would, you know, given the differences between humans and non-humans, that would be a um, more likely to produce results. One would have thought. Well,
0: oh, um, I, I I agree. That's one of the arguments I make. But that that gets us to why you. Th- I mean, because you say in the book that you think that all the things equal. Animals have less lesser moral value than humans do, and and I'm I'm confused about that because I don't see why. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that, obviously, and I argue in the book that that's not the case. And I, I'd like to know what what is your view? Why do you think animals have lesser moral value? Animal life has lesser moral value than human
1: life. I think the best way of demonstrating the the, the greater value of human lives is to examine the harm caused by death. Um, now, this can happen in two ways, I think. I mean, firstly, death causes harm to those who lose their lives. Um, because it denies a desire to stay alive. And in my view, it's, it's doubtful if most animals even understand the concept of staying alive, let alone having a desire to do so. Um, whereas humans, by contrast, do have such knowledge of the, the concept of death and therefore can be be, be harmed by death in a, in a way that animals can't. But I think there's another way in which... Death can cause harm, and this is in terms of the opportunities that that are lost by death. So,
0: so, you don't have you don't think animals have a desire to continue to live?
1: Well, they don't understand the 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 concept of continued life.
0: Well, they don't understand it the same way we. Uh, presumably, they don't understand it the same way we understand it. But that, but I mean, to say that they have an interest is to say that simply that they have a preference
1: or desire or want to stay alive. Well, they have right? a. Yes, but arguably the preference to avoid suffering is is greater, so therefore the painless death of animals isn't necessarily the same kind of harm as it would be for humans. But there's another way, of course, in which death can cause harm, and that's in terms of the opportunities that are lost by death. And there, I think, it's wrong to say that, 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 that the painless death causes no harm because we're unaware of it. Um, and I would argue that that applies to both humans and animals, and that's why I think that animals do have an interest in, in, in continued life. Um, because of the death of an animal prevents the, the future possibility of pleasurable experiences. Um, but my point is that, that the harm caused by the death of a human is much greater, and this is because humans lead... Richer lives, and in particular, the, the intellectual capacities of humans means that they can plan for the future in ways that animals can't, and therefore, the death of a human involves the the loss of those opportunities um, in ways that it doesn't for for animals. Now, you know, I recognise that it's important to exercise caution about the the value of uh, of animal life. Um, you know i 'm aware of the philosophical doubts about uh, um, uh, when it comes to the cognitively more able species, such as the great apes, for instance um, but you know even if we accept that animal experiences are less s- sophisticated than those of humans, there's still a possibility that they might be more intense than ours um, and as you say, as you say, animals have experiences humans don't have and, and as I say in the book, these may be extremely enriching, um, but I think I mean my the bottom line is I, I I think we should exercise caution before claiming that the subjective experiences of animals are are somehow inferior to human experiences um, yeah
0: i i i think i think that's i think that i think it's I really believe that that it's impossible to make what appears to be a descriptive or an empirical assessment that isn't really a normative assessment based on species, and I think also even if you even if you could make it, you then end up if you're not going to be speciesist about it, then you you are, I believe, committed logically to saying that um, human beings who are cognitively more able. Uh, or who have greater satisfaction in life matter more morally uh not to say that we should go around wantonly eating humans or or using them in biomedical experiments but in situations of conflict uh and we could we could argue about what conflict means and when we can when we could identify si- legitimate situations of conflict we would it would seem to me we would be con- we would be hard pressed to deny that um uh in situations of conflict, if we're not going to be speciesist about it, we would be committed to saying that uh, a I've got I've got to uh, sacrifice one human as opposed to another. Uh, I'm in a situation of conflict. However, you construct it, however, you would agree that there's it's a it's a one or the other situation. If there's somebody who's happy um, and enjoys life every day, you know, gets up every day and and goes out and spends all day uh, gazing at daffodils um, because that person derives great satisfaction from doing that and really does enjoy it and then you have somebody who is um, really depressed uh, and doesn't get a whole lot of satisfaction out of life then we'd be morally committed to choosing the to sacrifice the depressed person uh, or the person who's far less intelligent, um, and do, you know, some somebody who's not very smart and sort of is bitter and doesn't really enjoy life very much, and whatever, and somebody who is more intelligent, and and every day, you know, reads Shakespeare and says, "Boy, it's great to be alive." We'd be committed to making those distinctions within
1: species, right? I mean, wouldn't we? No, because uh, you know, as, as 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 Darwin pointed out, even though there, there there's no great uh, there's no great distinction between human and, and non-human uh, um, uh, levels of, of cognitive awareness. Um, the least um, intelligent, normal adult human is is uh, significantly more cognitively able than 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 the the most able non-human animal. Um, so that the, 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 you know the, you, you wouldn 't be distinguished between different levels of intelligence in, in human beings but by, but why but, but
0: why not but, but why why wouldn 't the principles still be the same let 's assume that 's right let 's assume that 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 I think they may be different, as I argue in the book and other things i 've written. I think that animal cognition because animals don 't use symbolic communication, I have no doubt that animal cognition is different i don 't I don't know that we can talk about it being better. Or, or or it being more enriching or, you know, as a matter of fact, I don't think we can do that without making speciesist assumptions. But let's assume that we could say that, well, as a general matter, um, the cognition of humans is more enriched and more, uh, you know, it's more enriched than the cognition of non-humans as a general matter. Got to be careful, but as a general matter. And that therefore the lives of non-humans are worth less, all the things being equal, is, are worth less morally than the lives of humans because of this. Now, again, I think there are all sorts of problems with that, and I don't know how, uh, I, I don't think that that argument works for the reasons I articulate in the book. However, let's assume it does, then are you not committed? I don't see why you would not be committed to the idea that you've got to sort of apply the same reasoning. Within species, so that you know you'd have to make you'd have to if you have a choice to distinct if you if you can distinguish if you have a choice of using a chicken or using a non-human great ape, you would certainly be obligated to use the chicken and not the non-human great ape. And then you you know which which a lot of animal ethicists, I mean, I mean Singer makes that distinction. He basically says that the life of the of the non-human great ape matters more than the life of the chicken because of this. So you would be making distinctions within um uh the 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 the, the class of, of beings known as non-humans the question becomes why don't you make the same distinction within the class of humans because you would then be in a situation in which you would be committed um, or, or you'd be in a situation in which you you have to choose there are no animals on the planet no animals all the animals are gone um, and we have a choice of of um, of we can find a cure for cancer, and we're going to respect your right not to suffer. We're not going to make any of these two humans suffer, but we're going to kill one uh, in order to find the cure for cancer. We can't use non-human animals. Uh, we've got a choice between somebody who's cognitively sophisticated and has a lot of of, of opportunities for satisfaction and somebody who is um, less cognitively able and has fewer opportunities for satisfaction. I cannot – I mean – it seems to me your answer is, well, because humans have sort of this minimal, important level that sort of rules out their use in this way, but then that becomes totally arbitrary and totally based on species. It has nothing to do anymore with the characteristics that translate into moral worth. It has to do with species being a marker for that, right?
1: Well, it isn't, it isn't related to species in, in, in the sense that we're talking about the characteristics which normal adult humans possess. Um, if you're if you're talking about the use of marginal humans, and that that brings us into a very different set of arguments, um, and indeed you're right to say that Singer does not only talk about the use of different uses or d- different characteristics being morally relevant amongst non-humans. He also talks about different characteristics being morally relevant within humans, the human species too. Um, and in fact, he's he's as you know, he's invoked more controversy by saying that than he has talking about animals. Actually, um, but it, you know, but but we we are talking about situations where it's necessary to choose. So, because animals have a, I argue that animals have a have an interest in continued life. We could only um, sacrifice that interest. Uh, if If a situation occurred where human lives were at stake and and clearly that is extremely restrictive um, and I think in, in a world where there were no animals to use, clearly we, you know there 'd be a different set of moral arguments about what what we 'd do in the situations where we thought it was necessary to choose such as in, such as in you know finding cures for cancer and so forth um but i think you know I, I, I think the bottom line here for me is that we need to to try to avoid that as i say in the book to avoid make, making claims that are open to challenge uh, particularly if there is an alternative position that that is um that offers a strong ethical case for the better treatment of animals and i think w- what i've tried to do and what we've explored um in this uh, this podcast is is to look at uh w- w- what the consequences would be of adopting this the moral position that i do
0: okay Uh, A central point of disagreement between us is that you believe regulationist groups such as the RSPCA, uh, the uh, Royal Society for for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, Compassion and World Farming, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, the Humane Society of the the United States, are seeking and achieving worthwhile wins. Uh, Do you believe that uh, any of these wins does much more than make animal use more economically efficient? If so, can you identify them? Uh, And do you believe these groups are stimulating demand for higher welfare products in a way that will adversely affect Overall demand. Um, first, let's let, let let's look at the economic efficiency argument because that's the central part part of my work, which um, I, I don't think you you defenders of regulation appreciate as as much as you should. Um, and that is that um, that if you look at the history of animal welfare reforms, in my judgment, um, they are by and large. Um, uh, advances that make animal uh, use th- they increase production efficiency. So if you look at things like gestation crates and you look at um, you look at uh, uh, veal crates, uh, stunning of poultry versus gassing of poultry uh, most of the most of the of the the subjects of campaigns um, are things that actually make uh, animal exploitation more economically efficient to the extent that, that there are minor um, increases in in uh, production costs, for example, going from uh, battery conventional batteries to um, uh, 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 enriched cages, which is what is required under the uh, directive of the European Commission, which is supposed to be implemented by 2012, which will never be implemented by 2012. But um, uh, you know, you're talking about minor increases, even even. Uh, f- uh, cage-free eggs the, the the costs are actually very, very small and given the uh, what we call elasticities of demand uh, in that if uh, and I'm not saying this for Robert's benefit because he knows about <laughs> elasticities of demand I'm saying this for those of you who aren't familiar with some of these economic terms um, if, if to say that, that uh, demand for something is inelastic is to say if you raise the price, you don't really affect demand much. Uh, and to say that demand is elastic is to say that small increases in prices will result in shifts of demand. Um, and that basically, to the extent that animal welfare reforms have added any production costs, and it's very, very hard to find those that have, uh, they have, by and large, um, uh, been very, very small. And um, and they are the sorts of things that, that can be passed along to the consumers, so they actually benefit institutionalized exploitation. So it it's it's um, it's not clear to me that these welfare reforms, these 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 things for which these organizations campaign for, um, are particularly um, are doing anything to shift the shift the idea towards inherent value of animals. If anything, what they're doing is making production efficiency they're increasing production efficiency and making animal exploitation more economically efficient i mean why do you dis- do you just you disagree with that i'd like to know why
1: well this is another very complex question and uh, um, I, I i mean i, I would i'd make the f- the first point i would make is that that i think we need to ask why is it that um economic efficiency is the prime motivation behind much of the regulation. and I think we can come back to that when we perhaps talk about the the causes of of particular kinds of regulation. But on the specific issue of economic efficiency, I'd say that that reforms improving the welfare of animals that also have the effect of making animal exploitation more efficient are, are clearly easier to achieve. Um, because you're not having to uh, fight with producers to the same degree as you would otherwise. So that's clearly why they've taken prominence. Um, in addition to that, I think it should be noted that there are, there are plenty of examples where producers have campaigned vigorously against proposed reforms on grounds of economic cost, but they've also still lost. So we heard.
0: But they always uh, do that, though, Robert. They, do. Well, they, yes, have, to do but, they have to do that.
1: They do, but then, uh, how do you know that it's not true? Well, because you
0: look at the economic analysis. I mean, I mean, I mean, for example, in 1985 in this country, when we had the uh, the, the the amendments to the Animal Welfare Act, the 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 primary change in that amendment was the addition of animal care committees, and. You know, researchers were were jumping up and down and saying, oh, this is really terrible. This is going to be the end of biomedical research as we know it and blah, 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 blah. And and they campaigned very, very vigorously against it. And it was – and I, I, I thought it was – I actually thought it was a, 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 it was a, it was a great educational uh, event for me because it taught me an enormous amount about how this all works. And they, they campaigned vigorously against it, even though it was absolutely clear that it was for their benefit, that the creation of animal care committees, uh, particularly the sorts of animal care committees that were being proposed, would allow them to point to these mechanisms, which were useless, that they would be able to point to them and say, we're regulated the same way uh, institutional review boards regulate human experimentation at, um, at all the universities in the United States. And, and, and so therefore, we'll have a parallel system of, 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 of subject regulation, which is not it's absolute I mean there's no such thing as informed consent in the context of animal uh, uh, of animal experiments for, for, for one for one uh, one distinction and there are many others as well but um, you know th- they fought against it and they fought against it vigorously and uh, and I remember you know talking with people including people from the National Institutes of Health and you know and speaking with them and saying you know why are you guys Fighting this like this, I mean this is like you know, this is a gift to you I mean the, I mean I think the animal people are wrong to be campaigning for this i think it's a, i think it 's a silly campaign uh, i think it 's ill advised and why you know but 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 the question becomes i 'm sort of curious as an academic why are you i was a young I was a young still idealistic law professor at the time i 'm still an idealistic law professor and i i um, I asked him, I said, I, I don't understand why y'all are fighting about this. And and um and I was told by a number of people, basically the same thing. They weren't sitting in the same room at the same time, so it wasn't that they were all listening to each other. But they were basically giving me the same response. We have to fight everything that the animal people do. If we don't, then if we don't impose an opportunity cost on what on on, on, on your campaigns, then You'll have no disincentive to bring them, and you'll dry, You know, you'll you'll do all sorts of things we don't want you to do. So we'll fight anything you come along with, including things that we ultimately think are not all that terribly bad. And it was the same thing with the Humane Slaughter Act of 1958. It was the same thing with. I mean, look at the look at the at the the whole business with gassing chickens. Um, if you were to start a, a slaughterhouse, if you were to start a slaughtering operation tomorrow, and you chose electric stunning rather than controlled atmosphere killing. I would think you would have to have a psychiatric evaluation because you'd be acting economically irrationally. It is absolutely clear that controlled atmosphere killing, is, other things being equal, is a much more economically efficient way of killing animals. Not only because it cuts down on the actual the the, the, the costs of actual killing, but it cuts down on carcass damage um, and it cuts down on it, it, I mean it. it the economic efficiencies are considerable. They're absolutely considerable. Um, and I have no doubt that um, all of the chicken suppliers, all the poultry suppliers, are going to switch to controlled atmosphere killing um, eventually. Some of them have capital costs involved in their present thing, and they're, you know, they, may not, they may make economic decisions um, about when they're going to do that and whatnot. But there's a drama, there's a dance going on right now, and it's a, hi- it's a highly orchestrated dance. Of the animal advocates who are saying we must do this because it's chicken rights or whatever, you know, let's let you know the the, the rallying cry of the revolution. Let's gas those chickens, um, and and um, and you have the you have the you have the institutional exploiters saying you know no, we're not going to do that, and blah 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 blah. They'll fight about it, and and the result will be they'll eventually switch to controlled atmosphere killing, and the costs that they've spent that industry has spent in fighting this will be well invested because ultimately. What they lose is nothing, and what they gain is time, and focusing the issue on something that is largely irrelevant vis-a-vis animal welfare in terms of uh, of really making cha- you know of changes that are going to really you know m- m- provide significant improvements or cut down the number of animals. This is not going to do anything to decrease the number of animals. It's not going to add anything to the cost of of uh, of chicken production. If anything, it's going to lower it. So when you say, how do I know? The answer is you look at the economic data. I could tell you, I mean, you know, you could predict these things. You read the economic, you know, I-, I read agricultural journals. I suspect you look at them as well. And you can, you know, you see articles written by agricultural economists and, and, and um, you know, they're always talking about, you know, this practice or that practice it should be changed because it's not economically um, uh, beneficial. And you know they were saying those things about gestation crates a few years ago. Now what do we have? We have a gestation crate campaign. They said those things about the veal cr- veal camp- veal crates. Well, you know we had the veal crate campaign. Um, there are issues now about about mega dairies, which you're, you're dealing with in in the United Kingdom. Um, it's puzzling to me i mean you know there's a, most dairy in, in in britain is produced in intensive agriculture in intensive situations the fact that they're going to have even greater intensive situ- situations in in lincolnshire or wherever they're they're putting these these places is not going to really matter to the cows one way or another because the the intense the the intensity is going to be in terms of numbers and not in terms of individual animals and and there are some people who are saying, well, you know, this is really sort of a bad thing because the costs, you know, the, the externalized costs, the the, agricultural, the environmental costs and stuff like that make this really sort of not a good thing to do. So, you know, I mean, so what do we have? We have compassion and world farming. Every time I turn on the computer and I look at, you know, uh, Philip Limbury's tweets, he's talking about the mega dairies at Nocton. So, I mean, you can identify these things
1: yeah i mean I, you know on, on the issue of the the, the mega dare it'd be interesting to see what kind of opposition is uh, is mounted against them and I've heard um, that that's become a um, um, quite a significant issue and 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 and, and could well uh, affect its uh, prospects of being implemented but i i i think you're right to say that the costs will often be exaggerated by producers. I think you're absolutely right about that. and in response to that, I would say that I would say that we should look at the, um, the possibilities of um, mm-hmm. the, the abstract possibilities of making changes that, that do actually re- increase costs, and what happens when costs are increased? For producers, is that they're passed on to consumers, and most of the opposition to uh, uh, to animal welfare reforms in the UK hasn't been based on so much as the increased costs to producers. I think that to some degree they've largely accepted that in terms of, you know, stalls and tethers, and in terms of um, um, the um, prohibition of battery cages too. Whatever, the, the, the the issue that producers have raised is 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 the um, the potential for, for for say British producers to be put at a disadvantage in terms of uh, the european union um, because imports will be cheaper and therefore British producers will suffer economically so in those situations they they haven 't really denied the fact that there will be extra costs of these changes and 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 the evidence suggests that there are extra costs. In some, so in, in, some it,
0: cases, in some cases.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, you know, I, I accept that uh, in, in a number of cameras, I've come across many cases where producers have clearly, I mean, interviews I've done with producers for previous projects, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. They do exaggerate the, the costs. And, and this is partly because they, they think it's the thin end of the wedge, as you say, That you know, you make one change and, and the whole uh, the whole uh, card pack will come tumbling down. Um, the other point I'd make here, I think, is that it's useful to ask, uh, again, an issue I raised in the book, it's useful to ask what's meant by economic efficiency here. Um, you know, and the, obvi- the obvious definition of economic e- efficiency is, is the production of a product in the quick- quickest possible time at the cheapest possible price. And if that if that's uh, the 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 goal, then animal welfare is clearly likely to suffer. But another definition relates to to, uh, to uh, uh, the pro- profitability that might involve a, a recognition or a perception that uh, that consumers want better welfare standards, um, um, so that these costs are passed on then to Consumers. So there's a potential for making economic efficiency more compatible with animal welfare. And the the case of battery um, uh, eggs versus free-range eggs is an example of that. Um, But you know, I'd I'd reiterate that in my view, there's there's nothing written in stone about animal welfare legislation. then it isn't inevitable that economic efficiency must take precedence over animal welfare. I think a lot of it depends upon the kind of pressure put upon producers by the general public um, well,
0: but what I'm saying, though, is that animal welfare gets defined in terms of economic efficiency, and that is that is the history of animal welfare legislation, I believe. you know, so, I mean, I, I don't think that, that it, it's all that terribly controversial, and I think the instances that you can point to that are counterexamples of certain bans of this or bans of that have much more to do with um, class issues. I mean, for example, in this country... You know, people get all upset about dog fighting. Um, they get all upset about the use uh, by uh, by people from uh, San Domingo or Cuba or or whatever in terms of uh, animal sacrifices. But these are these are sort of almost class and cultural things, as as you know, because they're they're, they're irrational um, in terms of their their basis of, of objection. But but what you're saying is there's no reason why you can't. There's no, there's no reason why you couldn't, in theory, have consumers demanding a higher level of welfare. I, I've never disputed that. Of course you could have consumers dem- demanding a higher level of welfare that goes beyond economic efficiency. The problem is is that you've got to educate consumers to do that. And you've got, not only do you have to educate consumers to do that, but you'd have to have consumers who significantly cared enough about animals. If you really wanted to make a difference um, in animal welfare, uh, and you wanted to really you really wanted to get away from the factory farming model and go towards a model in which there is significant protection of animal interests. I still think it would be immoral, um, uh, but if you wanted to move toward a system like that um, you, could you do it? Well, in theory, you could, but you'd have to educate people. Would have to care enough to pay lots more money for their animal products, and so then you end up with one of two situations: a situation which is just like sort of purely elitist, where you know only only the wealthy can afford to eat animal products, or you end up in a situation in which you've educated people about the inherent value of animals and they stop eating them. I mean, in, in other words, I think I think the amount of time and, and effort that has to go into somebody uh, in educating somebody, educating the public about Paying, you know, 17 times what they pay now to get uh, meat or dairy products that are produced um, with greater uh, uh, uh Regard for animal interests, uh, you put that amount of time in, and you'll get them to stop eating. I mean, if they care enough to pay that amount of money, they care enough to stop eating them. And I think that you know, I think we're deluding ourselves when we say, well, you know, the difference between you know that there's a real difference between a conventional battery egg and a uh, and a and a cage free egg. I mean, you know, the I mean, there are cage free operations up, I, I believe, in Scotland. Uh, I've seen, I, I haven't seen them in Scotland. I've seen pictures of them, but I've seen some here. And the cage-free operations here and vis-a-vis the conventional battery egg, I mean, I, I, the idea that, you know, people are buying these, these, these cage-free eggs uh, and saying, oh, you know, this is, this is really good. This is really good morally. And the answer is, no, it's not. You're, they're still tortured. They are still being tortured. Um, and, you know, they may be tortured slightly less than in the battery cage. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, but they're being tortured. Uh, and so I think there's a you know there's a real issue about why, you know whether it's a good idea to be promoting uh, those sorts of things uh, as 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 morally desirable. Um, you know, I mean, I, I this is where I have a problem with all these camp these 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 campaigns. I mean, I, I, I think these labels. Which are proliferating in in your country and here in terms of there are now like you know half half dozen of these things if not more Uh, organizations animal organizations charging I believe they charge fees to use these things uh, to certify that that um, these products are uh, are uh, uh, humane or whatever that whatever they are and um, and and the idea that this is not that this is not increasing demand, they wouldn't be doing it <laughs> if it were. I mean, why would they be doing this if they didn't think it was going to have an effect in the marketplace? And, um, and you know, and uh, as I as I point out in the book, I, I'm really troubled by the, the, the promotional literature of the RSPCA saying, look, we're working with producers to make, you know, we're, we're going to help you sell animal products. We're going to work with you. Uh, we're going to show you how it's economically. I mean, they make the efficiency argument. I don't. I mean, well... I, I do in the book, and I do in my... But I'm saying they make the efficiency argument for me. If you look at the RSPCA literature about freedom food, what they tell you is that it is economically beneficial for the producer to enter into one of these schemes. And so, you know, you don't even have to take my word for it. It's what the RSPCA is, 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 is saying. Recently, uh, HSUS made the statement with respect to um, the Ohio Board of Standards of Animal Welfare that um, you know that that getting rid of gestation crates you know in the sometime in the next four hundred years or whenever they're <laughs> going to get rid of them in the future that this is something that makes makes uh, animal consumption more acceptable uh, to the public and that was actually stated explicitly I have it quoted on my uh, on my website so I mean
1: the organization seem to recognize this you don't think that that's a problem I think it's a problem when the uh, the um, welfare friendly um, uh, b- products aren 't particularly good where they do exaggerate the quality of the the animal welfare being uh, promoted uh, you know and I do think there 's a difference between genuine animal welfare regulation and um, um, substandard animal welfare regulation, I mean, an example that the one that you that we, we talk about in the book is the difference between enriched cages and genuine free range um, um, chickens which uh, is, is is clearly clearly an important distinction, and in some ways the public opinion in in europe is is ahead of the regulations on this in the sense that you know um, most supermarkets in the u k won 't sell um, Battery eggs, or in, or eggs from enriched cages, um, whereas the EU regulations are only moving very very slowly towards enriched cages. But um, but some members of Europe, such as Ge- uh, the European Union, such as uh, Germany, are, are moving towards uh, prohibiting any kind of cage birds.
0: And do you so think like that there's you- a significant welfare difference between a conventional battery cage and and, and cage free? Have you been to a cage-free? Well,
1: well, a, a, a genuine free-range. I said. I mean, the, the um, and it depends on the 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 the, the, the amount of space um, um, and uh, the general quality of the, the the regulation. But there's clearly a difference between a good regulation and a bad reg- regulation in this sense. Um, so I'm not denying the point that, as I never have, that. that that uh, animal welfare reforms uh, leave a lot to be desired, as I've said numerous times in the past. But I think you can make a distinction between the t- between good animal welfare regulations and poor animal welfare regulations, and that the the cause of the uh, the, the the cause of the difference is often to do with the, the political will um, uh, that exists at any particular time, um, and that. Kind of leads us on to talking about the uh, um, the, the property dimension of this, I guess. Um, and in, and I mean, I you know, I, we we're now talking about economic efficiency prior to talking about the issue of of what I call the counterproductive argument, the argument that you use about um, um, the um, um, the tendency for for happy meat to make consumers complacent. Um, and I think there are a number of arguments to make uh, against that kind of argument.
0: Okay, well, uh, go ahead and make them. I mean, if they they weren't making consumers complacent, why do you think these organizations are all falling over themselves to develop these labels? I mean, they they obviously think there's some value there, right? Yeah, I mean,
1: let let me, for the benefit of people listening, it might be useful to, to sketch out what the argument is. I mean, what you call like the kind of happy meat argument, what I call the counterproductive argument is that you think if, uh, um, reform, uh, if uh, reformist animal welfare objectives are successful, then they'll hinder the achievement of abolitionist goals by making the consumption of animal products more acceptable. Um, and I, I think that's a, a, a crucial part of your argument because it, if it fails, then the additional argument about the uh, you know the animal welfare reforms are in any case of little value becomes much less important. Um, in other words, if if the pursuit of animal welfare reforms bears no costs for animal advocates because it doesn't deter people from from becoming vegans or vegetarians, then there's a greater case for for pursuing them even if the benefits are going to be slight. If there's no costs involved in 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 uh, the, uh, uh, the The the, uh, um, promotion of animal welfare reforms. So, you know, I think it's quite a crucial um, part of the debate. And the first point I'd make is that I'd I'd regard effective animal welfare reforms, those that genuinely reduce animal suffering, as 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 ethically desirable, irrespective of whether they're a staging post to abolition. So, I do think that you know, genuine free-range um, agriculture is preferable to fa- to factory well, farming. Well, what do you
0: mean by general free-range? What do you mean by general? I mean, uh, let's take eggs, for example. Now, I mean, uh, um, uh, free-range eggs, you can have a variety of situations which, which can be classified as free-range, correct? I mean, there, it, 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 you don't have to – we're not talking about – Chickens always outside or or, or having shelter in inclement weather we 're talking for example, free range can be nothing more than cage free plus there's an area where some of the animals um, can circulate through i mean you know all the animals all have access to some outside space, but never all at one time and and it 's a fairly small sort of piece of the barn that that can be free range as well right <laughs>
1: It depends in which regulatory regime you're talking about. Within within the UK's one. I think the regulations are a little bit more strict than that. And you know, stocking densities are obviously hugely important. But you know, I'm talking in the abstract about effective or what I regard as as genuine free-range systems, uh, which would require much more space. Stocking densities would would be much less. Uh, they would enable the birds to. Um, um, uh, to, to be outside and to get shelter from the the elements um, and I would regard those kind of systems as as you know as ethically much more desirable than than than, than what exists now i mean that's the first point i'd make um, but i think more more the more sub more substantive point is that it i think it's difficult to prove or disprove the, the, this counterproductive argument because I think it involves a, a kind of speculative judgment. You know, if, if such and such is done, then a future objective won't be possible. You know, so it involves a claim that if animal welfare reforms are pursued successfully, then abolitionist goals will not be achieved because not enough people would want them. But I don't see how that can be proved or disproved
0: well i look I, I i grant that these are difficult things these are th- these are difficult things to ha- to to know definitively it just seems to me that first of all you made the statement that genuine Welfare, genuine and significant welfare reforms would be would be ethically desirable. Well, you know, would that we had a chance to see what those look like? because the ones that, that we are currently dealing with i don 't regard as significant at all. I, I see them as being largely efficiency producing measures, things that would that producers would do anyway, even if there weren't animal welfare campaigns because you know ultimately, if there were no animal welfareists on the planet animal institutional explorers would do most of these things anyway because it's in their economic best interest Every, you know people have to remember animal factory farming is something that um, that, that that developed in the 1950s It started in the 1940s but basically developed in the 1950s and the 1960s and it is only now that agricultural economists are beginning to identify certain practices of 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 animal use that are economically inefficient and you know for for the benefit of people who aren't all that familiar with the economic uh, arguments. Um, for example, you know, I mean, people in the 1950s thought, well, you know, if you have, if you can make ten dollars by having ten animals in a barn, you can make, you know, if you, you know, you can make a hundred dollars by putting a hundred animals in the barn and just stuffing them in. And people weren't factoring in the fact that these are sentient beings and that they will suffer stress in, with certain densities and that the certain densities will and the, the stress will result in illness and that will result in the need for veterinary care, et cetera, et cetera. So. You know, you had people who were saying, well, let's put all these, you know, these veal calves in crates, you know, and we can do this and we can, you know, we can sell this white veal and blah, blah, blah. And But people weren't taking into account that uh, if you have animals isolated like that because they're sentient beings, they suffer stress, they then have illnesses, they then require veterinary care, that raises the opportunity cost of animal ownership and adds to the the production costs. So, you know, now, it's only now, in the early part of the 21st century, that agricultural economists are beginning to say, hey, gee, gestation crates are a problem, hey, gee, you know, there are other practices, you know, uh, veal crates, other, other practices. Um, I mean, you, you know, the, the egg producers are saying, well, you know, maybe the, maybe the battery cages ought to be larger, maybe that would be better, maybe that would result in, in overall uh, greater efficiency uh, when all factors are taken into consideration. And indeed, interestingly, Robert, I don't know what the British sub- studies show, but the American studies show uh, that if producers switch to cage-free, it actually will cost them less than if they change their operations to have the larger cages that are rep- that are recommended by the egg producer by the egg producing uh, industry. So, so um, I mean that's at least uh, something I have seen uh, uh, in, in in print. So, I think that. Um, that when so first you're talking about significant increases. I don't believe those things exist yet. Number one, N- number two. But
1: but that that's the key point, isn't it? I mean, you, we we if we agreed that um, there haven't been effective animal welfare regulations, then how do you know then that if that how do you know that if there were them that. Uh, that would deter people from becoming vegetarian or vegan
0: because because i know that i see i have you know you and i you and i've been doing this for a long time i mean we're going on what almost 30 years of of doing this um uh, at least i am and and um uh, and i the sort of resistance i see and the the fact that industry and the fact that sort of the general economic constraints, limit welfare reform to these very, very minor sorts of things. Um, I I don't, I mean, why, then it's very speculative on your part to say that, well, we're going to, you know, because you say this in the book, you say, well, you know, yeah, we've got to keep pushing, we've got to get more progressive welfare reforms. And the answer is, why do you think, why do you think that that's even feasible, given the economics? Why do you think that's even feasible, particularly in a world in which, in which um, animal exploiters, uh, I'm sorry, in which uh, markets are are international. So, you know, so even if you were to persuade somebody in country X to do something, um, if country X is part of some regional or international free trade agreement and can't limit uh, the import of lower welfare products, if the demand for the lower welfare products is there, there's going to be a problem. So you don't really change anything uh, for all intents and purposes. Those people who want the lower welfare product will buy it. Um, and so all I'm saying is I think it's going to be, as a practical matter... The idea that we're going to get progressive welfare reform is incredibly speculative, number one. And number two, as a common sense matter, it's a zero-sum game. I mean, you know, to the extent that we're putting effort into these progressive welfare reforms, which we don't have yet – um, to the extent that we're doing that, we're not putting time and effort into educating people about not eating animals at all. And you can say, well, you know, you can put all the time and effort you want into that, and, you know, you have no, real, you have no proof it's going to work. And the answer is, I don't have studies that show it's going to work, but um, you know, I, I have my own experience, and I see what's happening now with the abolitionist movement, which is basically a, a group of, you know, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a total grassroots, I mean, we don't have, there's, there's, no, there's no large uh, abolitionist organization, that is for sure. Um, it is basically, you know, an organ. You know, it's basically grassroots organization in different countries where people are doing grassroots educational efforts. And what we are all finding. Is that people are very, very responsive, uh, and people are interested in hearing about you know i mean that, that many people do think that when they buy something with a label they're buying a higher welfare product or they're or they feel better about it and things like that? I agree with you, more study needs to be done but but um but you know i think I think just as as my position um you, you could you can say that my position is speculative it seems to me to make sense um in in, in 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 that if people are concerned about an issue and the animal people who are identified as animal rights people or animal protection people or animal people as a general matter if they are if if they come forward and say yeah that's an all right you know this is good eat cage free eggs this is good eat gas chicken that most people are going to do exactly what these organizations think they're going to do, which is why they're pre- presenting this in the first place. They're going to say, yeah, okay, I feel better about this now. And, and so if you tell people who care about an issue that the experts in the, in the area, the, so, the supposed experts in the area put a, a stamp of approval on something, that's exactly what you're, you're going to get is, is, is behavior in accordance with what those people say. And so all I'm saying is that, you know, th- that seems to me to make sense. And and, and, um, you know, and, and and what I'm proposing is that we put resources into vegan education because if what the experts are saying is that we really ought not to be eating animals and here's why we ought not to be eating animals and that we can't really do this in a way, not on a large-scale basis. I don't think it can be done on a small-scale basis either, but it can't, certainly can not be done on a large-scale basis without inflicting suffering that would be tantamount to torture if humans were concerned. So therefore, if you care about this issue, then you, 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 the answer is to stop eating them, not to not to purchase animals that are that are slightly less tortured. That strikes me as being sort of something that we should at least try. And given the the response that I see. Um, I mean, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be putting my time and effort into it if I didn't think it was paying off, um, and and uh, and it clearly is. So I don't know why you think that that you know what I'm proposing is any less speculative. I mean, you know what what you're proposing is basically the position of the entrenched organizations, which are making lots and lots of money off of what doing what in essence is selling indulgences uh, to people, and you know. Uh, Go forth and you know, go forth and eat animals, and you can do it in a more humane way and in a more morally acceptable way. I think that's. I mean, doesn't common sense tell you that that's exactly what people are going to do, and people are going to respond to that by saying, "Yeah, it's okay for me to consume." Well, a
1: number of points in in response. Uh, um, First of all, I don't don't oppose vegan education campaigns, and I I think it's an important strand in the uh, uh, the work of the animal rights movement. But I'm highly skeptical that if you can't get a substantial number of people to entertain the idea of, of, uh, uh, of, of consuming welfare-friendly meat, which is the case, it still remains a very niche market, how are you going to get them then to um, uh, agree not to consume animal products at all? I mean, my, my, my gut feeling is that the, the existence of more welfare-friendly meat won't make much difference to the demand for meat. Actually, after all, there's been a massive expansion of meat consumption, based for the most part on the factory farm industry, and, and this suggests that, that most people aren't that bothered about the origins of, the, of their food. Sad though, sad though that is, and I, I don't think. But if
0: the, if that's true, then then you can never expect any significant increase in welfare reform you' going to then you you 're going to be would, relegated to playing to a niche market one way or another
1: well um, there 's room for improvement, but it seems unlikely to me that people are going to jump from an interest in eating humanely produced meat to being vegetarians or vegans i mean I, I, I just don 't think that there 's this reservoir of people ready to convert to vegetarianism or, or veganism or at least not enough to make a difference. You know, uh, it it's it's really significant that, that, that despite the fact there's been an increase in the number of vegetarians in the uh, um you know, since the nineteen seventies, although it, as you say, it might be de- declining now marginally, but it, that's coincided with a massive expansion of meat consumption. Um and this actually makes me think that what's what's needed is is um, the role of political elites to introduce reforms which are going to um, make a difference to, to the lives of animals. I mean, it, it, I, I think it is um, significant that a lot of moral reforms that have been introduced, at least in 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 in, in the UK, have been. First of all, initiated by political elites and then others that the, the general public have been forced to follow um, but it, it 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 seems highly speculative to to expect a vegan education to campaign and to my concern is that 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 dismissing any attempt to try to influence animal welfare legislation would be a would be uh, um, the wrong step to take.
0: Well, I mean, but if if what you say is correct, though, that most people don't really care about the origin of their food, then you can you can't really expect you can't really expect any significant change or improvement in animal welfare standards beyond production efficiency sorts of of reforms, which are going to happen anyway, and in the absence of animal welfare campaigning. Indeed, may even happen faster, um, uh, ironically. And certainly, political elites. I mean, um, I I would imagine the fastest way for a political elite to be voted out of office is to... is to is to introduce uh, 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 things that um, the public really strongly or the, the public doesn't care about, um, and where there really are no um, no segments of the public or no large segments of the public that are in favor of it.
1: Um, and, but this, but and, on the other hand, the the state has enormous power to try to influence public opinion. Um,
0: well, sure. I, I, I mean, I, I mean, sure. But but um, uh, I, I, I guess I guess given that the state i don 't see the state as different from the corporate interests that uh, shape the state and fund the state um, and and I realize that there are some differences, although they 're decreasing actually uh, between our political systems and i think there, i think most I think the political systems of most nations in the world now are are becoming um, uh, very much uh, uh, shaped by corporate interests, and so you know we can't really sort of look at those political elites as different from the the, the corporate interests that fund and shape them. So I'm not sure where we're going to go there. Let me just say this: I mean, I think that there's a, I think there's a tremendous pool of people in my country and in your country, and we can worry about the rest of them down the line. But there's a tremendous pool of people, a very large number of people, who live with companion animals and who love animals. The, all of the people who get upset about Michael Vick and his dog fighting and things of that nature, those people are are prime candidates for vegan education, um, and and you know people who do have emotional attitudes and, and and feelings about animals are prime targets for vegan education. And the number of times that I encounter these people and they say, oh, you know, I really love animals and you know and I buy only products that are that are approved by you know PETA or the Humane Society or the RSPCA or whatever, um, and I only buy animal compassionate or freedom food or humane raised uh, 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 certified humane raised and handled or whatever that that uh, label is that that uh, is promoted by uh, the Humane Society here. Um, the number of people I, I encounter who who say this, and then when I explore it with them. They sort of look at me and they say, well, you mean this is not really different? And you say, no, you know, here's a picture of a, of a cage-free operation. Here's a picture of a conventional battery. You know, yeah, there are differences, but, I mean, would you say that this is an acceptable situation? Well, no, I guess I wouldn't. And, and so, well, you know, but I would, you know, but, but, gee, I thought that, you know, this organization would never, you know, I mean, it's, it's interesting, HSUS um, sued Purdue. In New Jersey, because New Jersey has uh, these consumer protection laws, which are fairly strict, and HSUS su- sued Purdue, claiming that its statement that its anim- that its chickens were produced humanely was deceiving to consumers. And and you know and I, HSUS is absolutely right to say that telling people that these animals have been humanely produced um, uh, is problematic because it conveys an understanding that most people. Uh, d- most people would understand something different from that, uh, from saying that these animals have been humanely produced. But then I would say also that the the animals that are produced with labels that HSUS uh, itself – uh, uh, approves of are also tortured. They may be slightly less tortured than the Purdue animals, but then we end up with this battle of competing labels and who's torturing animals less. Um, and and um, you know, and I I but I do think that there is uh, there there's a really a large group of people uh, out there who could be educated. Is is this is everybody in this group? And the answer is no. But no one is ever. You know, you're never going to have a group where everybody's in the group. Um and, and so and, you know, and, and so, and there are going to be people who don 't care one way or another, and to the extent that that group is large, then it 's not clear to me how you 're ever going to get any any significant welfare reforms, let alone anything else. but you know I, I mean you know, if, if people don 't care, then they 're not going to care, and they 're not going to care enough to want to pay a lot more money for significantly improved welfare standards either so you know that's why i say if we had a group if we had a large group of vegan of you know people who thought that animals that it was that 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 animals really were not things that we should eat or wear or use um if we had a large number of them then we would at least have a political movement that that uh, might not might not be able to affect uh, world veganism uh, in, in short order, but certainly would provide a basis for moving animals away from the property paradigm and towards the personhood paradigm. As it stands right now, I don't see any really significant political action to affect that movement, and I think that movement is is absolutely essential if we're ever going to really see any any, any change. But I have, I have a question to ask you. Um, and that is, in the book you said you were a, 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 a dietary vegan and I'm one of these uh, chat things or whatever because I got all these emails. <laughs> I got all these, did you say something different? <laughs> did you say you weren't a vegan? No, what I,
1: I, what I said was that um, that uh, occasionally when uh, um, eating out it's difficult to to guarantee that you're eating vegan food um, but uh, certainly the, the the food I consume at home is hundred uh, percent vegan. you were getting lots of emails about that really.
0: yes 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 i don 't know I, 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 you, it was uh, I, it was on one of these chat things and you said something about I think you said something about e or at least I think you said something about eating cheese because people were cutting and pasting and sending these things to me and and um, and they were saying that you ate cheese and I said, well, in the book he says he 's a dietary vegan. And which I took to mean that he doesn't eat animal products, but, you know, he may have a pair of leather shoes or something or wool or, you know, or no, you didn't wear leather. But I said I took that to mean um, that he may, may, he may wear a wool, uh, you know, jumper, a sweater or something. Um, but but I didn't understand that he consumed animal products. And I said, oh, yes, he says he eats cheese. <laughs> so I, I just thought I'd ask you.
1: <laughs> no, it's this not is, exactly this is what your chance said to said. Clar- this but... is
0: your chance to clarify it. <laughs>
1: yes. Yes. Uh, um, Um, I can describe myself as 100% a dietary vegan at at, uh, at home, but you can never guarantee that that, uh, if you're eating out anywhere, that that stuff you get is 100% vegan.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's true. I I mean, I I actually have stopped um, and have for a while stopped eating um, anything cooked uh, in a a non-vegan restaurant. I even stay away from non-vegan restaurants, but if I find myself in one, I will only eat... Something like a salad, um, and um, and put oil and vinegar on it, which is brought to me at the table. Nothing which is mixed, um, because I don't um, I don't want. Uh, I, I am aware that restaurants can be notorious, but anyway. All right. Well, uh, I want to thank you. Do you have anything else you'd like to you'd like to add?
1: No, no. I think we've uh, we've covered most of the bases.
0: Well, I want to thank you so, so terribly much for um, spending this time with me, and for and, and I, I enjoyed writing the book with you. I thought it was a really um, a good opportunity for two people who didn't, uh, you know, who, who who agreed on a lot, but didn't agree on the sorts of things that really sort of are splitting um, uh, the animal movement right now. the 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 question about, you know, what do we do? in terms of um you know, should we pursue abolition, should we pursue regulation? Does regulation work? What, what about all these campaigns and things? And most people I, I find just really can't discuss these things in, in um in there there's very little civil discourse about these issues. And um and, and I, I enjoyed writing the book with you because I thought it was um not only civil discourse, but it was it was fun. Uh it was it yeah. was a good exercise yeah. and I, I enjoyed
1: it. And um, it's it's possible to uh uh, it, it's only really possible to to uh, fully challenge your own position when you're uh, faced with someone who's is arguing very different things. And
0: it's, exactly, know. exactly. And also, I want you know, it's it's a shame that um, it's a shame that uh, uh, you're not here or I'm not there because I I can tell you that um, I've gotten a number of inquiries of people who wanted who want to have us both on, uh, you know, and, and I've actually talked with uh, Columbia about that because it becomes difficult because our, you know, we both have. We're both. You're, you're, you teach. I teach. Uh, and there's a there's a there's a five hour time difference, and it becomes very difficult to try to coordinate these things. And um, and I actually I got a uh, an invitation to do a television thing uh, not long ago, and I said, well, that's going to be rather hard because uh, you know I'm here, he's there. So I'm sorry about that, but um, but we will I'm sure be doing some some. Uh, some joint uh, interview things uh, in uh, in the spring. But thank you so much, Robert. Uh, Robert Garner, professor of uh, politics at the University of Leicester in the United Kingdom and co-author of the Animal Rights Debate, Abolition or Regulation, uh, published by Columbia University Press. And uh, thank you, Robert, very, very much. I very much appreciate your time, and, uh, and thank you all for listening. Thank you. All right, well, that wraps up commentary number 23, the interview with Professor Garner on our book, The Animal Rights Debate, Evolution or Regulation. Thank you very much for listening. If you are not vegan, go vegan. It's incredibly easy. It's the easiest thing you'll ever do. It's better for your health. It's better for the health of the planet. And most important, it's the morally right thing to do. Thank you very much for listening.